This is The Guardian. Today, how the Windrush generation shaped British culture. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. We didn't have a television until 1972, when I was 11 years old. And our television were the Caribbean people around us. Luton was a migrant town. There were South Asian people, there were Irish people, and there were Caribbean people. And mostly we were in amidst the Caribbean people. When the author Colin Grant was growing up in Luton, he didn't think too much about what his parents, Ethelyn and Bagai, had left behind on their journey from Jamaica to Britain. I was surrounded by these really entertaining characters who were... made you want to be like them. And I used to practice the Jamaican walk, which was just faster than slow. I couldn't picture what Jamaica was. It was a far-off, magical, mystical place, as far as I was concerned. And so these people who were close to my family, they were kind of proxy for the Caribbean. But after leaving medical school and then quitting a career at the BBC... Grant has gone on to write books about some of Jamaica's most significant heroes, from Marcus Garvey to Bob Marley, the Windrush generation, to the characters in his own family. It's a connection to the Caribbean that keeps pulling him back, one that he shares with the writer Patrice Lawrence. My biological father, Patrick, hence Patrice, he was born in Guyana, his mum was Indian, his father, African Guyanese. So he came to Brighton to train to be a nurse when I think it was like 1920, and apparently his friends were saying, they were all just sitting there, saw an advert, thought, you know what, go to England. I am such a Caribbean cliche, like, you know, both my parents were nurses. And they're kind of mess, it's like mid-60s, no family, and suddenly there's my mum, pregnant. Lawrence grew up in Brighton in the 1960s and 70s, in a house filled with books. My mum is still a massive reader. You know, you go and visit her and you, like, open a cupboard to put in your shoes and a book falls off and knocks you on the head. And in a sense, it's our love language. She felt compelled to write from an early age. But it wasn't until 2016 that her debut novel, Orange Boy, was published. Lawrence has since become one of Britain's most prolific authors for children and young adults, and she's won multiple prizes for her work. The Caribbean isn't just part of her heritage. Its influence is embedded in the daily reality of British life. It's an idea that Charmaine Lovegrove is also keen to celebrate. 
I feel as though I really have to pay homage to the extraordinary feat of my grandparents because when I think about how they came off those boats and off those planes into a country that was so hostile to them where there were no chili peppers there were no mangoes there was no ginger I don't know how they managed to bring our culture like so fully. Lovegrove is a third generation British Jamaican. Storytelling is rooted in her soul. It's a passion that inspired her to set up her own bookstore as a teenager and to found Dialogue Books, where she publishes work from new authors. I just feel so incredibly proud of that generation and all they achieved and all they brought to us. And I don't know who I would be today without them. This week marks 75 years since the Empire Windrush docked at Tilbury in Essex. On board were hundreds of people from across the Caribbean who would make Britain their home. Today, with Colin, Patrice and Charmaine, we'll explore the profound cultural legacy that generation has left behind. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, British Caribbean literature at Windrush 75. Colin, Patrice, Charmaine, you all have parents or grandparents who were the first generation arrivals from the Caribbean to the UK in the 1950s and 60s, people who are now dubbed the Windrush generation. Can you tell me about that connection to your Caribbean heritage? What shape did it take for you growing up? What were the adults in your life like? They were all very unique and had very strong personalities and had a lot of flair, a lot of charm. And they all had these fantastic names as well. So my father was called Bag Guy because he had permanent bags under his eyes. Tidy Boots was very fussy about his footwear. Shine was bald. Clock had one arm longer than the other. And my all-time favourite was a man they called Summerwear, who when he came to England from Jamaica in 1961, he insisted on wearing light summer suits no matter the weather, come rain or shine. And in the course of writing my book, Bag Out the Will, I asked my mother, whatever became of somewhere? And she said, well, within a few months, he caught a chill and died. And how about you, Patrice? What did your connection to the Caribbean look like? My mum was the second youngest of 12 in Trinidad. And she's the only one who came to England to train to be a nurse. But I first got to know, in a sense, my Trinidadian heritage when I went to Trinidad the first time when I was six, because my granddad had died. And it was suddenly all these uncles and aunties and cousins and a terrifying grandma, but none of them could understand my English accent and I couldn't understand a Trinidadian accent. So I was kind of caught feeling that in England, even though I was born in Brighton, I'd never be considered English. In Trinidad, I was considered English. So it was that really weird type of sort of weird thing. And Charmaine, how did you feel the influence of Caribbean culture growing up in the 1980s? I grew up in a huge multi-generational family environment. So all my grandparents are from Jamaica and then their children, my mum's two brothers, my dad's five siblings, every marriage, every relationship was always with someone Jamaican. And I'm actually the only person that's not married to someone that's Jamaican. I'm the only person that has a mixed race child. And so that influence is like really long and really deep. I'm raising my kids in Germany and so they're the fourth generation and my 11 year old 
I give him certain looks. Those looks are the same looks that I was given as a child. And he knows exactly what those looks mean. Patois, like I wasn't allowed to speak Patois. My grandma didn't want me to speak Patois, but a lot of my family speak Patois. So I totally understand it. I just don't respond on it because I I'm my grandma's granddaughter. I'm my grandma's granddaughter and I do exactly what she says. Do any of you remember when you were first introduced to storytelling and oral traditions that were specifically Caribbean? My mother would read the Nancy stories, Nancy the Spider. She told those stories really well. She is a great storyteller herself, my mother, because she came from the countryside. To explain things, she would conjure how she would work and live in the countryside. So, for example, we always asked and were intrigued by why our mother married our father, because she didn't seem to like him very much at all, in fact, nor he, her. But she would liken herself to a chicken and talk about when you throw corn to feed the chicken or the fowl. She would say, you pick it and you pick it and you pick it until you pick fowl filth. In other words, if you're too choosy, you end up with shit. Who were the storytellers in your family, Patrice? My auntie baby. Everybody seems to have a, like an uncle or auntie baby in a Caribbean. <laughs> and her real name is Lost in the Mr. Times. And auntie baby is actually now 97. But she is like the repository of all the family myths, all the family legends, where the Ladger Bless landed, who sort of sucker, yeah, who ran off with somebody else's husband, all of those things. And actually just listening to those stories is kind of what made me feel that this was my culture and it made me feel storytelling was my thing. I can reassure you we have quite a few babies and pinkies in our family as well. (laughs) And Charmaine, what did that oral tradition look like for you? Hearing the stories of my grandma's best friends and everything that they went through and the way that they would tell those stories, the drama and like really big belly laughs and also how they held back a sadness and what silence meant. I really just remember understanding that these were stories that were being told because they would be repeated differently. And then when you would hear them being repeated, then they would take a new shape and a new dimension. And you weren't allowed to repeat what you'd heard or question or contradict because you'd get into trouble. That was sort of very formative in how we tell stories and how stories are allowed to travel. How different do you think your childhood and adolescence was when you compare it to the elders in your family who are part of the Windrush generation? For me, it would be my education. My parents were educated up until the age of about 14 in Jamaica, and then they went out to work some money. But they scrimped and saved and decided to send me to a private school in a place called St Albans, which is about 20 miles from Luton. But I'm indebted to them because they didn't really have the money to do that. And the way that they managed to do that was my father became a small-time ganja dealer and I was his bagman and would go around Luton dropping off the ganja to his Caribbean friends who came with their love of ganja intact. So my education was funded by marijuana, praise the Lord. <laughs> but I think the the most thing actually it's funny that Colin said praise the Lord it's actually faith my mum grew up in a Catholic family where that church was quite important and when my mum came to England I don't know it's because she found herself pregnant quite soon and thought there is no God but um, there's been absolutely none of that you know I'm not christened my daughter's not christened so you know for so many Caribbean people people talk about you know the church and Sundays and that's just not part of my experience so I think 
that faith experience and that faith community for good or bad is actually what's incredibly different from myself and still all my aunties in Trinidad who have gone off into you know Seventh-day Adventist or Baptist or Pentecostal where we're the kind of raving atheists of Sussex. Patrice, you had written and shelved three books before you had your award-winning young adult novel published. And Colin, you went to medical school and had a whole career at the BBC before becoming an author. For both of you, what inspired you to keep going? I always wrote stories, one because I was a bit of a show-off and I was good at it. And also I just enjoyed it. It was like the way I made sense of the world. All the books that I read when I was a child, Enid Blyton, and if it wasn't her, it was Arthur Ransom, and then the deeply racist books by Hugh Lofton, the original Dr. Doolittle's, I kind of read all of those. And that kind of told me really clearly my place in the world, and I absolutely absorbed it to such an extent that I did not write black characters. And it was only when I just had a baby and I was watching TV, and there was a BBC adaptation of Mallory Blackman's Pickup Boy, And it was a black family that wasn't the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and it wasn't about gangs and crime, it was about love and ethics. It was kind of like this door opened to me and I thought, oh, okay." But I think, you know, for me, weirdly, because I never thought I could get published, I carried on writing. I wasn't writing to get published, I was writing because of the absolute joy of it and because I think my imagination would just explode if I didn't. Yes, I think I read and wanted to emulate the writers that I admired, people like V.S. Nepal and Sam Selvin and George Lemming. And I remember on one occasion, probably about 20 years ago, I sent a short story to a man. He was an agent who was looking for unique voices. So I sent him my short story. And within a week, he wrote back to say, I'm not interested in ethnic stories. Right. Which rather surprised and disappointed me because I didn't think I was writing an an ethnic story. I think um, one of the great things that have happened is that the gatekeepers have changed, or some of them have, and by God, thank God for Charmaine Lovegrove, one of the new gatekeepers. Thanks, Colin. Yeah, we're very much here for that. Very much here for that. Charmaine, you've been working in bookshops since you were a teenager. You even had a stall selling books under Waterloo Bridge. You later worked as a literary editor at Elle magazine and in publishing for many years after that. You've said before that I've only ever connected the author to the reader. That's what I do. Why has that been so important to you? The more that we tell stories and the more we understand each other and the deep empathy that it creates and how that connects to a sense of equality that would hopefully lead into equity is actually my driving force. My uncle was an activist, the late Len Garrison, who founded the Black Cultural Archives. So knowing that Linton Kwesi Johnson existed, knowing that there were people kind of around the corner in Brixton who all had lyrics, and those lyrics didn't need to be written down, but there were stories that needed to be told. And so I had quite a different experience to Patrice, where she talked about being surrounded by white male and stale writers. I've just never known a world without kind of an abundance, brilliance of black, powerful storytelling. Colin, in an essay you produced for Radio 3 about Trinidadian literary giant V.S. Naipaul, you wrote about advice that Naipaul's father gave him, which was... Write as a West Indian for the West Indies. This may not appeal to you, but you're likely to get more money that way. And 
This was because, as you said, Caribbean writers before then had often tried to second-guess the taste that British audiences had for the exotic. How much do you think things have changed for you as writers with Caribbean heritage and the stories that you're telling? Well, I think I've now written six books, so I have a bit of social capital and I can stay the course without having to argue to stay the course and to introduce much more vernacular, much more lyricism into my writing, which was thought to be a little bit problematic when I first began. So, for instance, without shame or without rancor, I can say that I didn't want to call a previous book Homecoming. I wanted to call it Soon Come. Mm. This is a book about Caribbean migration to Britain. But the people in Penguin Random House didn't understand the phrase and they didn't think that anybody would understand the phrase. And that I, I would have understood the phrase. <laughs> dialogue books would have understood the phrase, but uh, I didn't have enough allies at the time in order to get the phrase through, as it were. But I think I was just reading a book by Jacqueline Crooks called Fire Rush, and it is full of Jamaican nation languages, full of vernacular, full of patois. And obviously, either the editors have been more schooled in opening wide the door to different ways of speaking or different ways of phrasing and language, or there are more people of my background who are creating a wave where they can no longer be ignored. So I think things have changed much more for the better, actually. And Patrice, how about for you? You wrote about growing up in a world where you were so inured with white books and white characters. When it came to writing, how much do you think it's changed for you in terms of what you feel you can write and do write? I think it's a little bit different in writing for younger children, basically because of the demographics. So if you look at the last three censuses, there's much more children born of Caribbean plus one white heritage and of two Caribbean backgrounds. So the nature of many Caribbean families, of younger families, tend to be very mixed. So the books that I tend to write, particularly the ones for young adults, always had families with roots all over the world. With the children's books, the sort of picture books, I think you should start young. You should sort of get in your sort of your anti-racism and your alternative stories on a moment you can. So, you know, I've written one sort of picture book, which the brief was, write the history of the African continent in 800 words for four to six year olds. You're like, yeah, hold my latte. It's really around changing that perspective, the one that I grew up with in Britain, where all you heard about Africa was famine and hunger and corruption. Weirdly, no mention of the scramble for Africa or any of Europe's involvement in the continent. I think it's hard because sometimes there is a feeling that publishers still want the racial trauma books. And I think what you can do in children's publishing is just be very subversive and make your Caribbean heritage children the heroes, the heroines. You can have little digs here and there. And you can get those books through now. There are more of them. I worry that in children's publishing, it's a trend. And there's a big commissioning process following George Floyd's murder. And you kind of wonder if a black person has to be murdered for something to happen each time and then it dies away and then we start again. But I do think in children's publishing, you have got a groundswell of people of colour, so a mix of people who are coming together to try and change things. So I do feel that there is that change, and I think there is a power of change. Well, Charmaine, what do you make of what Patrice has just said about publishers wanting racial trauma books and about the wave of POC writers being a trend? Because you founded Dialogue Books in 2018 to shine a light on stories for and by marginalised communities. But how much has publishing genuinely changed since you began your career? 
So what it's saying to me when I listen to this is reminding me of how much this is about individuals and the individual gatekeepers. Mm. And it depends on what the experience of that particular editor is like and how they're prepared to sit in the room with sales and marketing and publicity and say, this is why this is important and stand by it and not be curtailed by fear of like what the retailers are going to say. It's just about being a human being and understanding that your view of the world and your lens of the world is not the only lens. Mm. There's way too much work still to be done, considering how much impact we've had culturally in terms of lyricism, in terms of writing, in terms of storytelling as the Caribbean. Not only did our family help build the NHS 75 years ago, it's not a coincidence that we're sharing the 75th anniversary, but they also gave us a huge amount of culture in terms of language. Colin, you've written a lot about Caribbean figures in history, and you've recently published your own very excellent memoir, I'm Black, So You Don't Have to Be. Now, in that you write about how the last 10 years have actually made you and your kids feel more black, and about how your relationship with your Caribbean identity has shifted through the years. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Well, I was schooled and I'm sure Patrice and especially Charmaine will be familiar with the phrase to play fool the catch wise, which means to disabuse people of the notion that they should fear you. And so you do that sometimes by pretending to be a little bit more simple than you actually are. And I think to get into some of these bastions of British society, that's what we did, my generation anyway. That was true of getting into the BBC, where you wanted to persuade people that but for the colour of your skin, you were just like them. But it's kind of clear to me that after my fourth disciplinary hearing, I hold the record in the whole history of the BBC for the highest number of disciplinary hearings, that actually there was some disconnection between how I perceived myself and how I was fundamentally perceived. I thought that after a while, after 10 or 15 years, I would just be Colin. But at some level, I wasn't part of the trusted tribe. And every time I was invited for a discipline hearing, for some spurious notion that perhaps I was aggressive. I would challenge that description of myself because it would be a dishonour to my parents who spent all this time to ensure that I smoothly passed through British society by being erudite, by being someone who was an altar boy for seven years, a head boy at junior school, a head boy at senior school, went to medical school. I was establishment material, but at some fundamental level, I still didn't belong. And so I think I woke up to the idea that I wasn't going to try any harder to belong. And that meant being more expressive of myself in the way that I would be with my friends and good associates. So I could be more a man of Caribbean origin. So more flamboyant, more inclined to challenge authority, more inclined to be mischievous. And I think, in a funny way, that's rubbed off on my children, and they are much more inclined, because they're all involved in the creative arts, to dig deep into my Caribbean background and recognise there's a wealth and richness there. And they would say to me that actually, in a funny way, despite all of the privations, despite all the suffering, despite all the hardship, despite all the negativity, it's actually a good time to be black creatively. And I think I've embraced Mm -hmm. that, and my children have embraced that. Patrice, you have a mixed Trinidadian Guyanese heritage and your characters often reflect a melting pot of backgrounds and cultures. 
How does this reflect the Caribbean as it is? I honestly think people still don't understand that there are many islands, that there are many differences, that yes, many of us were shaped by enslavement, but we came from different places, that people have brought their own cultural differences. Wherever I go, people always instantly say to me, are you Jamaican? So there's little bits that you just kind of want to say in your stories about your own heritage. So, for instance, one story I wrote for a project between Book Trust Literacy Charity and Knights Of, who are an inclusive children's publisher. And they commissioned black writers and black illustrators to write stories and then got funding so that every children's library could get a copy of that. And... I wanted to write about a generation of sukaya, which are like shapeshifters. So in Trinidad, sukaya are often women, possibly seen as witches, but they can take off their skins and hide them beneath a rock and then go flying off into the night. And if somebody sorts their skins, they can't get back into them. But I wanted to have a generation of three grandma, mum and the little girl living in a tower block in Peckham. So I just think you can really mix it up. And I think it's sometimes tempting, I suppose, to think of the Trinidad of my childhood where people think about cricket or carnival or something like that. But actually, I think for me as a writer for children, it's how is our heritage informed British children? Who are we when we're all these multiple identities and come from all these places? Well, authors with Caribbean heritage, writers who are black or of colour, are often by the dint of their identity expected to be political. Do you expect and welcome that? Is it a liberating force or do you feel constricted by it? I think all writing is an act of politics in some way. I mean, it's an act of arrogance to think you can write and that someone should pay attention to your writing. But I think in terms of my writing, it's a political act because oftentimes the people I'm writing about haven't been written about before. And so I would argue that I'm bringing them in my writing from the margins to the centre they have rather rich and wonderful, glorious lives. and But for someone like me and other writers, they might still have remained in the shadows. And as a secondary act, I recognise that we are changing the narrative by including these people in our books, changing the so-called canon. And I embrace fully the idea that you can be an engaged writer who's writing both in a way hopefully that is educational and entertaining but it's also political in changing the ways that people are perceived. Coming up, what does the Windrush anniversary mean for writers today? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? 
Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. We're speaking today partly because this week marks the 75th anniversary of the Empire Windrush arriving in Britain on the 22nd of June 1948. How do all of you feel about what that moment in history now means? When the Windrush arrived in 1948, the passengers there arrived into a hostile environment. Winston Churchill had stood up the year before and implored the hundreds of thousands of white Britons who were getting down to passport offices for the embassies of Australia and Canada. He implored them to stay. 500,000 white Britons left Britain between 1948 and 1958. And in some regards, they were replaced by 300,000 African-Caribbean people because they were needed to get this country out of the bomb-shelled mess of the Second World War. I'm old enough to remember Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, But I'm also odd enough to remember that when that speech happened in 1968, I was at a school primarily with Irish children. And I'll never forget the Irish children were teasing me, saying that you might as well pack your bags, your time is up. And Sister Philomena heard about this and she came to the class and she brought me to the front of the classroom and she stared steelily at all of the children and said words to the effect of, if they come for Colin in the morning, they'll be coming for you in the afternoon. So I think I always knew that there were allies when I was growing up, but I was never sure that we would ever form a strong enough rebuttal against the people who didn't want us to be here. So I remember thinking also through my life, my mother had the phrase, we're only passing through, don't get too comfortable. But I think with every moment that the Windrush is celebrated, We mustn't forget that the word Windrush is now tarnished with the word scandal. So on the one hand, they may celebrate you, but on the other hand, they're going to find ways to get rid of you. So let's not let the man take us for fool. You know, it's really interesting to think about what we understood before and then having books like Black and British by David Olusoga like their understanding the racism and the structures that were actually created whilst the ship was in the sea then it just adds like a whole different narrative to what our grandparents and parents would have faced it's so bittersweet and that's where I go back to 
how incredible they are, they were, and giving thanks to them and absolute blessings for their tenacity, their agility and their staying power to create such an immense culture. Patrice, how about for you? How do you feel about that moment in history now? And has the last decade and the scandal of deportations and the threat of deportations of the Windrush generation changed how you feel about members of your own family, about that history and what they went through? You know, as everybody's saying, it's kind of mixed thoughts. Obviously, it's an iconic moment. But I think the fear of it is lots of things. That One, it eclipses the contributions of people who came before 1948, because obviously there were the people from around the world before that, and it took me a long time to discover them, because suddenly, you know, this happened in 1948, and this is when Caribbeans hit England. I mean, in terms of the deportations, I'm just absolutely furious, but I never really bought into the idea that we were particularly welcome anyway. Although I absolutely celebrate and applaud the courage of the people who came, the hostility is still there and it feels to me, and I grew up in the 70s and 80s, at the moment it feels as bad as it ever was. This month, all of you have selected works for a Guardian Books piece listing black British authors that have been important and influential for you. If you could pick one of those books, ideally by a Caribbean heritage author to stay with our Windrush theme, one that you could recommend to listeners, what would it be and why? Okay, I'm going to start with one of the books that I actually publish called Rainbow Milk by Mendes. It's set in the black country, it's set in the Midlands, and it's about a young boy called Jesse. His family are Jehovah Witnesses, and when they find out that he's gay, he's excommunicated from the church and moves to London and starts a new life as a sex worker whilst looking for family and love. And... What it really shows is the kind of multi-generational aspect of being from a Caribbean family and what those values look like from grandparents to parents to child and what it means to try and find your own path when the structures are against you. I'm afraid I got to pick two books, two books by two fantastic poets. The first is the collection Chick by Hannah Lowe. And Chick refers to her father, who was an Afro-Chinese Jamaican gambler. He was a card shark, an elderly parent whom she only really knew in a distant way, seeing him out of the corner of her eye. But there was something about him that imbued her sense of what is possible. And I can see my father in Chick. I can see the mischievousness of my father in Chick. And my second choice is a very fine Trinidadian-born poet called Roger Robinson, who you might know won the T.S. Eliot Prize for his poignant collection, A Portable Paradise. And I love that collection because it speaks to that idea that you carry home with you wherever you go. It's portable. And so tribute to the nurses especially the Caribbean nurses who've propped up the NHS all these years. There's a poem called Grace, which refers to the name of a nurse who kept his son alive. His son was saved by Grace. And when I'm at my lowest, I pick up a copy of A Portable Paradise and I am renewed, renewed again. Really wonderful. Patrice, your turn. First, I'll go for a picture book, which really 
made me think, wow, which is So Much by Trish Cook and illustrated by Helen Oxenbury. And it's written in the most gorgeous, lyrical poetry, basically about a Caribbean family. It's a snapshot of Caribbean fashion in the 1990s with the sort of grand-grands and aunties in their desert boots and there's the tracksuits. And it's basically a baby and a mum waiting for the dad to come home because they're going to have a little surprise party for him. But also, at the same time, it felt quite transgressive that the dad came home and he was in a suit and I never saw black men in suits in children's books or black men in children's books all stop in the UK. And I love that book so much. And again, it made me think how I could be an author and how I could bring families into books. Second one is Jay Bernard's poetry collection, Surge, which is where they discovered the archives on the New Cross fire. So it's about them discovering that, writing the poetry about that, but also tying it into the reactions to Grenfell, other tragedies that have hit predominantly black communities. And it's an incredibly powerful piece. I'm just going to say that I'm obviously the most Caribbean and I listen to my grandma because when somebody says you're allowed to do something once and I just do one, so... I did one book. <laughs> so you're you're the most Caribbean of all, Charmaine. You win. <laughs> Charmaine, Colin, Patrice, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. And I would just simply say one love, one love. That was Colin Grant, Patrice Lawrence and Charmaine Lovegrove. My thanks to all of them. As well as the books mentioned in this episode, there are more that our panel talked about and you can find the links to those on our podcast page. Just search for Today in Focus at theguardian.com. Alongside the likes of David Olisoga, Bernadine Evaristo and David Lamy, Colin, Patrice and Charmaine have also contributed lists of books that they feel have shaped the Black British experience for a Guardian books piece. You can find that and more by searching windrush at 75 at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. I'm Narsheen Iqbal, and this episode was produced by Courtney Youssef and Hannah Moore. Sound design is by Solomon King, and the executive producer was Huma Khalili. Have a lovely weekend. We'll see you on Monday. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.